Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to... Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre. And Sarah Nixon, Public Programmer here at the museum. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who've walked on Turtle Island before us. Woo! It feels good to be back recording this podcast. After a short summer break, we are back with a new series of Museum Chat Live. Hooray! We took the summer to focus on producing new virtual endeavors for our audiences. We're making the most of the challenging situation around us, working to imagine and develop creative historical programming that can meaningfully engage audiences and spark curiosity. One of these projects is the Where's the Pig virtual adventure series. Where's the pig? Forever in my head. (laughs) If you you follow our social media channels, you may have seen clips of this series. Or, Or maybe you are already the biggest fan of the series. Where's the Pig is, or should I say, Where's the Pig? is a virtual mystery series that takes you on a journey through downtown St. Catharines to find a pig missing since 1945, all the while learning about the vibrant history of our community along the way. At the time of this recording, the series has just wrapped up after releasing episodes weekly since mid-July. On this episode of Museum Chat Live, we'd like to take you on a journey through the creation of the Where's the Pig series and dig a little deeper into its inspiration and why this kind of museum work is so important. Okay. To help us explore this work a little further, we've invited historian Dr. Tim Campo, who among many accolades, teaches digital public history in the history graduate program at Western University. But first, Sarah and I talk about the making of Where's the Pig? Right after these messages. Hi everyone, it's Adrian here at the museum. We are so excited to welcome you back to the virtual museum lecture series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center this fall. We had an incredibly fun and successful spring series featuring stories of horses, shipyards, memorials, canal builders, and freedom seekers. Now we're back after a little summer break, with new and exciting historical adventures to fill your Tuesday evenings. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for a great lineup of local history lectures you can enjoy from the comfort of your home. September is all about our annual guided spirit walks at Victoria Lawn Cemetery. We'll have historian Adam Montgomery kick off the series on September 15th with a lecture about cemeteries and monuments, with a focus on Victoria Lawn Cemetery. Then, I'll be here on September 29th with a special behind-the-scenes look at our virtual presentation of the annual tours through Victoria Lawn, featuring stories and memories from the cast and crew of our guided spirit walks. October is just as exciting and will feature another special guest, Natasha Henry, historian and president of the Ontario Black History Society. 
Natasha will be giving a talk on the history of Ontario's racially segregated schools on October 13th. On October 27th, I'll be back to discuss the somewhat lost and mostly forgotten history of the Third Welland Canal. On November 10th, we'll present our emotional and touching First World War series, Stories from the Front, with stories from our collection about experiences at home and at the front from St. Catharines. On November 24th, I'll be joined by our public programmer, Sarah Nixon, to discuss a report commissioned by the United States Congress Freedmen's Inquiry Commission, written by Samuel Gridley Howe in 1863 on the condition of freedom seekers in Canada. Local interviews with both freedom seekers and recognizable names of the city's established businessmen opens up new histories we aren't used to hearing. And finally, on December 8th, our curator Kathleen Powell will present a talk on local fashion and our new exhibit, Marking Time, which features important moments of life and the textiles that go with them. Join us this fall and mark your calendars for an exciting virtual museum lecture series. Register by donation by calling the museum at 905-984-8880 or by emailing the museum at museum at stcatherines.ca. Our annual Guided Spirit Walks are an excellent opportunity for everyone to learn more about the individuals who once lived in their community. Some of those individuals are famous, some infamous, and some forgotten to time. Theatre, working together with historical narrative, truly lifts history off the written page. We've presented the Spirit Walks through wind, rain, and surprise September heat waves. This year had a different challenge in store for us, and while we are so disappointed we are unable to produce in-person walks, we hope you will join us for a virtual walk through Victoria Lawn Cemetery and the past eight years of guided spirit walks to watch some of our favorite scenes from our past. We hope a virtual walk will help bridge the void until a time when it is safe for us to all gather again. Join us September 12th or 19th at 7 p.m. for our annual Guided Spirit Walks, now a virtual presentation on YouTube. Tune in early at 6.30 p.m. for a pre-show chat with cast and crew. Register by donation by calling the museum at 905-984-8880 or by email at museum at stcatherines.ca. The inspiration behind Where's the Pig is a photograph dated from 1945 in the museum's St. Catherine's Standard Collection. Taken by a standard photographer, the image features a lone pig walking freely in the middle of Ontario Street in downtown St. Catharines. The pig likely caused slight chaos downtown. The street is shown packed with cars, though seemingly all parked, a cyclist, a few onlookers, and the photographer who would have been standing in the middle of the street to take the shot. The 1945 Ontario Street streetscape looks wildly different than today. The vehicles are classically mid 20th century looking. Some of the city's earliest car dealerships line the street, many with signs that hang over the sidewalk. And in the background, the iconic structure of the Welland House Hotel, the lettering of its name standing high on its roof. The cars and pig are certainly what makes this photograph so exciting. 
We'll post the photo to the episode notes on our blog so that you too can soak in every last detail of this fascinating photograph. We've always loved this photograph and we've used it in past programming. With this photo, we can tell stories of downtown history, built heritage, old businesses, old cars, and old hotels, and of course the agricultural heritage of our city. In the fall of 2019, this photograph was the inspiration for the development of an immersive school program for grade seven students. We wanted to develop a downtown adventure program that would engage students with an experience that was more active and playful while still exploring the history of downtown St. Catharines. So we came up with Where's the Pig? We met the students downtown outside of the central branch of the library and told them that we needed their help to find a mischievous pig missing since 1945. The pig had left clues in the shape of puzzle pieces and each with a hint alluding to where the pig had been. Students were tasked with following each clue, answering the questions, and using the hints left by the pig to go on different spots around downtown. The Where's the Pig school program was designed to be full of mystery, adventure, problem solving, storytelling, historical inquiry, analytical thinking, and of course, fun. It was super successful among students. As museum programmers, I have to say it was really great to see the students so engaged. They were determined to find that pig, discussing so seriously amongst themselves and eager to find the next clue to complete the puzzle piece. And all the while, they were learning about history. Both Sarah and I have our postgraduate degrees in public history, and we both studied the value of this kind of immersive historical programming in grad school. By bringing, <laughs> by bringing history into your lived surrounding, history becomes more tangible and something we can personally connect with. In fact, the Where's the Pig program was inspired by the concept of alternative reality gaming and how we can use ARGs and digital platforms to create meaningful personal connections to history. ARGs blur the lines between the gaming world and the real world. They intertwine virtual spaces like social media and blogs, and then built spaces of our lived environment, like museums and archives. While such virtual programming has always been an interest for us, the pandemic has certainly encouraged us to think even more creatively about how we could use our digital platforms and the technology available to us to connect meaningfully with our community. Among the many virtual projects we've dedicated ourselves to since March, one was to redevelop the Where's the Pig adventure <laughs> program <laughs> and to make it an interactive virtual series that people could access from home. Starting in mid-July, new episodes were released weekly on Facebook, Instagram, and on YouTube. In each episode, Sarah followed the latest clue left by the missing pig. She was the game player researching in the museum's archives to determine the pig's location and searching spots in downtown St. Catharines, all the while exploring the history of the city and visiting historic spots. At the end of each episode, Sarah would find another piece of the puzzle revealing the pig's whereabouts. And a key component of this virtual series was the quizzes, polls, and questions posted to Facebook, 
Instagram, and Twitter regarding that week's episode. It was an effort to keep audiences engaged throughout the week until the next episode. The virtual iteration of Where's the Pig? And the use of digital platforms like social media to engage our audience was directly inspired by an alternative reality game called Tecumseh Lies Here. When I was in grad school, my classmates and I played a beta version test of this game. And we found ourselves 100% entirely consumed by it. In fact, most of our other work was put to the side. Our professors were luckily okay with this. Game was run by, uh, by Tim, who we'll talk to in a few minutes. And uh, it was part of their grad work as well. And so it was kind of understood that we were okay to play the game and ignore some of our other uh, tasks that were officially part of the syllabus. But we were entirely consumed with it. It was so engaging. And then fast forward a couple of years when Sarah went to grad school uh, at Carleton, she read about the game in one of her public history courses. The game also inspired another ARG type program here at the museum a few years ago called History Hunters, where our participants, usually children on March break or in a school group, must track down the evil historian trying to erase William Hamilton Merritt from history and take credit for building the Welland Canal. So let's go back and talk about Tecumseh Lies Here and the game. Yes. So Tecumseh was a Shawnee chief, leader of a First Nations Confederacy, and military leader uh, in the War of 1812. Tecumseh led the First Nations Confederacy formed to resist American infringement into Indigenous lands in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And we should also say that that's like the most simplified version of the history yes. of Tecumseh's Confederacy because there were, a, you know, it was an it's extremely complex Confederacy of different Indigenous nations on both Absolutely. sides of the traditional American and Canadian border. But that's, that's the simplified version. Tecumseh was a First Nations leader, and when the War of 1812 broke out between the United States and Britain, Tecumseh and the Confederacy allied with the British. He was killed at the Battle of the Thames in 1813. A great amount of myth surrounds Tecumseh's death, his burial location never being confirmed, and furthermore, his story has been heavily appropriated throughout history to serve different needs of different factions looking to lay claim on different narratives of the past. Tecumseh Lies Here, the alternative reality game, spans across the internet and blogs, wikis, and on Twitter, as well as into the real world. And it works to bring awareness to how Tecumseh's story has been appropriated over time and to offer a deeper understanding of his role in the War of 1812 more generally. All right, let me tell you a little bit more about the game. That's what we called it, the game, uh, before we get into the discussion with Tim, because we really jumped into the deep end right away. The game was introduced to us as a game. We knew that, it, we, knew that we would be playing a game. We knew that we would likely be playing an augmented or alternative reality game. We didn't know anything else, though, about that part of the world and who was who was on the other side of the game but we did find ourselves with a set of instructions i should add <laughs> i should add who played the game it was myself and my 12 colleagues in our public history class from 2011 right on the first day of school almost uh, very early september maybe the first or second week we were told hey you guys want to play this game who wants to sign up everybody signed up 
we luckily all had our offices together. So we basically played not 24 seven, but close to 24 seven for about six weeks between first, second week of September and Thanksgiving. So the first, first set of instructions was given to us via Twitter or uh, a wiki, which was kind of like just a public domain where we could see information and drop information. And basically throughout the game, we were given clues in a variety of forms. It could have been through video, Twitter, uh, the wiki. Sometimes clues came in the form of uh, books in the library with clues or pages missing and, and lots of other ways. And when we were given a clue, we had to solve the clue. Sometimes it involved going to find something else, like a book would lead us to a book in the library would lead us to another book in the library. Um, some clues were historical based. So, for example, we talk about this poem that was uh, written after Tecumseh's death and written about the War of 1812. And the poem is weird and not historically accurate. And we had to sort of poke holes in it and find out what was wrong with it. And that then posting the answers to the wiki or to Twitter led us in the right direction. So that's one example. Often, sometimes clues would get pretty elaborate. And there was this amazing, amazing, really cool piece of technology that we talk about in the conversation as well called the um, the GPS box. Basically, it was a wooden, small wooden box, approximately, I don't know, 10, 10 inches wide. And, uh, you know, a jewelry box kind of thing. It had this little screen on the top in the middle with a button. And uh, the screen would give us clues about a location. And the cool thing was is that when you took this box, physically carried the box to a location in London, uh, London, Ontario, for example, the first clue sent us to uh, Banting's house in the Banting House Historical Museum, where the discovery of insulin took place at the corner of, I don't know, couple streets in East London. So we had to take the box there. We went there and the press the button and the GPS recognized that we were in the right location. So it gave us the next clue. And eventually that took us all the way out to Tecumseh's monument out in Thamesville, um, just west of London. And that's when we got the last clue, there was three or four clues. And we got the last clue and press the button and the box opened. And it was incredibly exciting. And then inside the box, of course, was an- another week week's worth of clues. Uh, and I should mention that we found the box. We found the box in a cemetery. And anyway, so this the game was just, it was taking us all over, um, all over London as we sort of followed the clues and did historical research, either communicating on the wiki or through Twitter with the puppet masters, which was Tim, uh, or which we didn't, and we didn't know that uh, until that, that, that unfortunate time when we got ahead of him and he had to call us and and say slow down because <laughs> you're ahead of us we were very enthusiastic bunch but part of that enthusiasm came from and I'll, and I'll, and we talk about this in the conversation as well part the these fake plot points that the that Tim and his colleagues had written into the storyline so there was uh, the the story the story of the game was a little bit different from the story of Tecumseh so the history was sort of the underlying foundation. And upon that, they built these fictional people and groups, uh, all who were competing to rewrite Tecumseh's story and find out where he was buried. Uh, so some were, some were obviously evil. You know, as the game progressed, uh, Tim and his colleagues were uh, encouraged by our uh, enthusiasm and buy-in to the plot. And so they added more of those elements of um, 
mystery and conspiracy as we went along. Those weren't originally written as Tim would talk about. The other part of the story was rescuing this, this guy from uh, Captain Smith from these evil people. And so a lot of the times it was hard to decipher and like living the game, it wasn't just playing the game, it was living the game. Living the game was really trying to figure out who do we follow, what clues do we answer? And often sometimes the groups would put, put in clues that didn't make any sense, that were just distractions from the real clues. So we spent a couple, like a week chasing something that was a dead end. Anyway, all this to say, we eventually followed the clues and they began to wrap up the game and and we uh, eventually went up to um, Fanshawe on your village where again, we played, <laughs> continued to play the game around the village for a couple of hours in one rainy afternoon, and then eventually found Captain Smith and, and that was sort of the end of the game. And so I think that the, the value of the game, of course, is us playing the game, but, and getting excited about the game, but really the value of the game is that it's connecting all of those feelings and that, that engagement brings like the fear and the conspiracy and the joy of solving clues and the teamwork that uh, we had to use because there's no way one person could play this game. We really were a team of players and researchers and, and we were working together as much as we could. I think it says a lot that this is one of probably one of the most memorable experiences of my university career. It says a lot about the value of gaming and teaching history. Out of all of that has come a bunch of different programs. I'm sure we're not the only museum to uh, use this type of game. And there's different levels, right? This The version that I played was weeks of playing every day with like actual um, hardware involved and going into different places and all these subplots. Well, when we translated that kind of game into Where's the Pig, we obviously had to scale it down and uh, change it. And I'm sure that other museums and other uh, history teachers and educators have done the same thing. And so it's, I think it's really important to, because like the game that we played was probably the most intense version ever, uh, but it's important to recognize the value that's inside of the game and the value that the game has in connecting people with history. And there's just a lot, there's a lot of feeling, a lot of engagement that you can't translate. I'm not, I don't think I'm doing a very good job of telling anybody what, what the game was like because you really have to live and play the game to get a full understanding of how exciting it is. And I think that's the same as Where's the Pig? Is that what, what the, what's, where's the pig, right? You don't really understand until you're playing it. Until you finish the game that you look back and say, holy cow or holy pig, that was, that was such a cool thing and I learned so much along the way. And now I have this new appreciation for Dance Down St. Catharines, all because of this sort of silly, silly plot that captured me and took me on this journey. There we go. With all that, we were thrilled to welcome Dr. Tim Campo, one of the former coordinators of Tecumseh Lies here, onto the podcast for a chat that we recorded a little bit earlier uh, about this project, ARG's Digital Public History and Using Digital Platforms to Connect the Public to History. Welcome to Museum Chat Live, Tim. It's so great to have you here. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So let's start with a little bit about you. Can you tell us what you do and what your interests are in the realm of digital public history? 
Okay, well, I'm an assistant professor of history at Huron University College in London, Ontario, and that's an affiliate of the University of Western Ontario. Um, and uh, I teach digital public history in Western's uh, grad program in public history. Um, so I research sort of what I call a long 18th century, which includes the War of 1812, that's sort of the, the, the later part of it. And uh, I've been really interested for the last, we'll say, decade or so in gaming, uh, in, in history, and in uh, new technologies like augmented reality. And just had a, a volume come out last year called uh, Seeing the Past with Computers, which uh, brought uh, scholars together from around the world to discuss ideas uh, and applications of augmented reality and computer vision uh, for history. Oh, that sounds super, super cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Like, what's that? Like. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, it has a lot of possibilities. So it's still really emerging. And it's one of those interesting things where it's a technology that is probably about 10 or 12 years old now. And most people know about augmented reality from their backup cameras in their car. So as you're backing up, it might show you an outline or something like that. That's augmented reality in its simplest form. But historians, we've always been augmenting reality. If you go to any historic site, if you go to any museum, all the plaques and bronze and, and whatever, uh, those are augmented reality. Um, and so we've sort of always been doing that. And so this new technology provides uh, some interesting ways that historians can uh, engage the public. Now, it's still very experimental. We've been saying that, oh, this is going to come into museums and it's going to change things for 10 years now. And it still really hasn't. I think Pokemon Go, I think, was probably the biggest moment for augmented reality. You know, it, it needs to find its imaginative spark, right? So you've got the technology. And now you need people like at the St. Uh, Catherine's Museum or elsewhere to actually figure out what to do with it and to perhaps stop thinking about it as a technology and start thinking about it as a medium for telling stories and for uh, engaging the past or engaging the public with the past in, in different ways. From my understanding, um, would you consider your Tecumseh Lies here a augmented reality project? It it start case okay, so it's it's tricky okay because you got <laughs> Adrian's laughing uh, because actually one of the hardest things about the Tecumseh Lies Here project has been to explain what it is because it's a very very big expansive thing. Okay. But there were actually two uh, Tecumseh Lies Here. There was the one that Adrian played, which was if you can believe that Adrian, that was in 2011. That was <laughs> 10 years ago. That yep. was a long time ago. Um, and that was an alternate reality game, still ARG, but an alternate reality game. And an alternate reality uh, uses the real world as its, as its gaming space. And so it is a game that spills over from museums and streetscapes and clues hidden in trees. And, uh, and, it, was, and it was online websites and uh, Twitter was just new back then. And, and uh, that was part of it. Back um, when we were all so much younger. <laughs> yeah, well, that was one of the funny things I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we did not anticipate Twitter would be part of the game. That's how new Twitter was. And then it was this, the players who made Twitter its basic, basically Twitter became the game board that, that it was played out on. 
so that that was that's alternate reality and alternate reality is usually a one-off um and it was really popular in the early 2000s um you still see it a little bit now and then but it's it's popularity um sort of waned because it demanded a lot of the players as adrian will remember um, but it also demanded a lot of the, the what we call the puppet masters, the people who were running it. Um, and it took over our lives. It added years to completion to my, my PhD at the time. Um, it, was, uh, it was a big and expensive ordeal. <laughs> so that's one of the things that, that has been um, a limiting factor, I think, in, in uh, the alternate reality games. Augmented reality games, that's a different thing. That's using your phone. Um, to um, to uh, uh, play the game. So I mentioned Pokemon Go. Um, a few years ago, Brock University, um, they did a couple apps uh, for the War of 1812 uh, Bicentennial, again, a few years ago, 10 years ago. Um, and they explored Queenston and Niagara-on-the-Lake. And those used um, a kind of mystery to take you around uh, around around town. That was developed by uh, Kevin Key uh, at University of Brock. Um, and so what we did with our second iteration of Tecumseh Lies Here was take a uh, advertising app called Layar, which is no longer around, but, mm-hmm. um, but it was a, what it was uh, designed to do was that say you're going through a catalog and you saw um, a refrigerator or you saw something that you needed to see inside, you could take your phone and then you could go over it and it would reveal you know, what, what's inside or whatever it is. Or you could take your phone and, and click on uh, a button that was revealed by putting it uh, over the page. And we thought that was an interesting way of engaging young people with history. So you show them a historical portrait of something from the War of 1812, Death of Brock or something, and then they could go over um, that page with their phone and it would reveal uh, you know, different parts of the story that they could then uh, connect and go deeper with. Um, so those are two very different things and we experimented with, with both of them and they're both confusingly called ARGs. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining those two different opportunities and they both sound like really great ways to pull history off the pages and experience it in a new way, what kind of opportunities do you think these kind of projects have in terms of engaging people with pub- digital public history? So I should actually point out before I continue that, so I was in this project, I was the sort of head grad student at the time uh, of our little team. And um, the project was really the brainchild of Robert McDougall, Professor Robert McDougall at Western. And he brought up the idea with me that most history games kind of suck <laughs> that, <laughs> that in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, if you have War of 1812 Monopoly or even the Medal of Honor games, something like that, what you're really doing is you're taking a skin of history and putting it over a pre-existing algorithm, right? So, well, what do you really learn about the War of 1812 if you're playing War of 1812 Monopoly? What do you really learn about World War II if you're playing Medal of Honor? Well, you might learn about the guns and stuff like that, but it doesn't really teach you anything deep about history. It's really just the skin of it. So what we wanted to do and what this, um, and what both of these types of ARGs allow us to do or provide the opportunity to let us try to do is to teach historical thinking. Right? So the idea of teaching people history has a history, that it changes over time, getting people to think about the past um, 
as a constructed thing. Um, and uh, getting people to engage with the primary documents that historians then build, right? So it's the idea, rather than history as facts and things to remember, history as a process and history as something that you do. Mm -hmm. And so Tecumseh Lies Here was all about doing history to achieve the ends of the game. So the game was doing history, right? So you actually had to go into libraries, you actually had to go into the archives, you had to go to museums, and you had to piece together things but there was another part to the game too is, and Adrian might remember this as being the frustrating part of it, is that it was built around uncertainty. So we don't know what happened to Tecumseh. It's one of the, the great mysteries of Canadian or, or North American history, right? Um, and we were not trying to set out to solve that mystery. That's not what we were trying to do. We were just trying to engage people with this kind of uncertainty and to accept that and to be okay with that, that we don't know. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. At this point, do you think you could maybe explain the, the premise behind Tecumseh Lies Here and the story you were trying to tell with the game? Yeah, okay, that's hard too. Yeah. Um, so an ARG, an alternate reality game, is storytelling through archeology. span it's, it's, Or transmedia storytelling is what is uh, another buzzword they use. So you, you come up with a story, okay? And then you distribute the pieces, you break it up and you distribute the pieces uh, online. So for example, we started in advance of the game, maybe six months and we created blogs and websites and a backstory for all the characters. We even had a cell phone number that you could call and reach the National Cleographic Society. Um, and they were the bad guys, right? And so you would actually call them and they had a stupid message and then they would text threatening messages to the players and all that kind of stuff. So it would, it, so these things were all over uh, London uh, and all over, uh, well really Southwestern Ontario and then all over uh, the internet in little pieces. And we didn't, tell the players how to play the game. We didn't tell them what the rules were. There were no rules. So we anticipated, for example, well, maybe they might hack into the code of the websites and find something. So I thought, well, we should, should we put clues in the code of the website and <laughs> things like that. Um, so, but the idea was that War of, so this was all on the, about the War of 1812 Bicentennial, which is now ancient history. Um, but we had the idea of, players engaging with this fake dispute between three different groups that were using and abusing history in their own way. So the National Cleographic Society was this sort of, uh, I don't know, sort of this shady organization, conspiratorial. Uh, they were American, which was kind of important because it's the War of 1812 in Canada. And so they were kind of our bag. And then we had the Independent Company of Foreigners, which was a reenactor group. And we, had, we chose that one because it was weird. It was made up of French deserters from Napoleon's army that they then sent to Canada to fight the Americans. They were very, history is the facts, this happened, it's dates and names, it's old school kind of history. And that's what their take was on it. And then we had this other group that was sort of a little bit like a, a hippie group. They were, they really into crystals and they, so they built this whole, this whole idea that power of Tecumseh was the power of the earth, that uh, there were ley lines, insulin was discovered in, in London because of the power and the earth and all that kind of stuff, right? So these three groups though, 
the idea was that each one was appropriating the story of Tecumseh, appropriating the War of uh, 1812 for their own reasons. And they were all wrong. And so, yeah, so we drop, where the players sort of drop into this fight in which one of the reenactors had been taken would have been kidnapped, I guess. I yeah. don't remember the story. Yeah. <laughs> by, by the National Cleographic Society, and they had wiped his memory somehow. And it was up to the players to try and reconstruct what had happened. In the process to, to freeing him, they had to reconstruct his research notes about the War of 1812. Yeah, I mean, and the, the thing that really made the game exciting in, in that way is that we were taking on some of it. We not just reconstruct, but we were taking on some of his research. And so because he was kidnapped for his research, the threat was always there that we were going to be kidnapped for our research. And so that was, that was um, I, I don't want to over, over, overestimate the, the scary parts of it because it wasn't, it was scary. <laughs> some days, some days it was pretty scary, but um, that, that was really a huge uh, momentum piece for us taking on the game as, well, for me anyway, <laughs> taking on the game as um, passionately, I think, as we did. I think, too, there, there was an, an important element that I kind of skipped over about the alternate reality game um, that, that, that helps to create this sort of uh, emotional engagement. And that is the idea that this is not a game. We, the, the puppet masters, the people playing it, never once said, welcome to uh, Tecumseh Lies Here. You are now going to do this. It never did that. So, um, and the other thing was Adrian didn't know who I was or yeah. any of the people playing and nobody in their group, except for one guy I TA'd once and he kind of figured it out. Um, but it was all a mystery of who was actually behind this game. I wanted to add earlier that you didn't just put together one linear set of clues for each, each three groups. Each group had their own set of distraction plots and stuff like that. So there were times when especially the um, intangible harmonics. And I think it was just one person. I can't remember her name. Yeah, Sophie. it was. Yeah. Is it Sophie? Sophia, yeah. Yeah, Sophia, yeah. So she was being super friendly to us throughout. And we were sometimes distracted about like, oh, maybe she's trying to help us. And so we'd go down that route when really we should have been, you know. And so it's not just one set of linear things that you wrote. You wrote like 15 different plot stories that and options for you for the puppet masters to use on us but then who knows where we were going to take it so i don't want anyone to think that it's oh it's just one one little thing no 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 six months i'm sure it took you longer than that it took about two years and we only wrote about 60 percent of the story and um 60 of the game and we wanted to see how the players would react and what they would come up with and um at one point I don't remember exactly how this went down, um, but the um, the interest in Germany towards Canada's first peoples and and how weird that is and and the the appropriation and, and all of that that goes involved that that became that started to come into the game because we discovered that the only theatrical release of the life of Tecumseh was an East German production known as a, a red Western or a communist Western right. in which they put Tecumseh in the role of this natural proto-communist fighting against capitalism. And so it was highlighting one of the other things we were trying to do with this was those three, those three groups. Also all the ways that the story of Tecumseh has been appropriated and used and misused um, throughout, throughout, 
really last 200 years. So whether it's a global story, and yet it's very much localized, just, you know, south of London. And it means everything from Tecumseh lawnmowers to every, you know, town in Ohio has a Tecumseh Avenue. Cheers, there was a Tecumseh statue, quote unquote, that they had in, in Cheers. So, I mean, it was also to look at the ways in which these national nationalist discourses and pop culture discourses have appropriated and mythologized and messed up with the historical memory of, uh, of, of Tecumseh. This sounds like such an incredible project. I'm so fascinated in how this game would have been all-consuming at the time and how it really blurred the real lived spaces that you were working in, but then also this imagined space that you're using to complicate the narratives. Uh, what kind of opportunities did you find that that uh, allowed you to dig deeper into to come to the story? I think just in terms of the opportunities that it had to experiment with ways of teaching history, it provided quite a few um, because we were able to get on the spot at battlefields, in museums, and get the players to take a closer look at what they were seeing. So I think there was even a point where we had our bad guys, they wrote a fake there's a, there's a big epic poem about Tecumseh that some guy wrote in 1820 or something like that. And um, we use that as one of our, our clues. And it was full of nonsense. But at one point, there is this blank stanza in the, in the poem. And so we, we composed a fake stanza that the bad guys supposedly had, quote unquote, found. But in fact, they had, they had made it up and it had this clue, but it was about street names and what street names meant in the East End of London. So it was a way really layer and, uh, and build and, and, and point out in a really fun way, in a way that people didn't realize they were actually doing of getting a, a really deep tour of local mm -hmm. history. One of the memories I have is the only time I broke what we call the fourth wall was when you guys had figured out where the last clue was. And it was at the Battle of the Thames site, which is about 70 kilometers south of London. And I saw on Twitter or something like that. This is back in the day when you would use Twitter almost as a text message. I saw that you guys were like, okay, we're going to go now. <laughs> it's like, no, it is, it is 830 at night. It's end of September. It's dark. I, we'll get sued if you end up traipsing around in some field and get hurt. And so I called them on the bad guy's cell phone. <laughs> we actually had a little cell phone, little flip phone that we got from Kudo or something. Called him and said, could just wait. <laughs> yeah, I think, you, I think you called me. Yeah. Um, and I was like, but... <laughs> no. But then, yeah, no, we, we, went, we went home after that. But we were just so excited. And also, we, have, we were ready to go. Once you called me, I kind of understood the fact that, oh, like, Tim has a life and a family. And he's not going to go leave the clues and stuff like that out 70 kilometers away for, like, a week. He had no idea how long it would take us to do it. Just turned out that we were super enthusiastic and did it very quickly. Yes. So it, it did make sense. Sarah and I have designed a couple of these sort of not as elaborate as Tecumseh Lies here, but as someone who designs these things, keeping in mind the background work that has to go into puppet mastering as, as, as your term is yeah. stressful and like can ruin the game, especially if you end up having to break the fourth wall or do it accidentally by not being on the ball or they move too quickly. Yeah, and there was like unforeseen things. So Rob McDougall, he was a lot more tolerant, I think, to the idea that you guys could fail in the mission. 
and you wouldn't actually get to the next level. And I found that intolerable. <laughs> I would not allow that to happen because too much work had gone in right. and we'd have to rewrite a bunch of stuff. There was a flash drive that we hid at the Museum of Archaeology and we had a whole big scavenger hunt and clue how to find it. And you found it, except it was locked and you had to have a password to get into it. And I don't know what happened. Maybe there was a spelling error in our password or something like that, but too many tries and it erases what's on the password. I never thought, or it erases what's on the flash drive. I never thought that, you know, you wouldn't get it, <laughs> but you didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it erased all of these clues that were vital for the next, uh, the next uh, uh, chapter of the, of the story. And we had a wiki at the time, and that was back when you could have these public wikis. So I can't remember what exactly what I did, but the, all that material ended up migrating to the wiki so you could get through the next thing. But I think Rob was content with letting you guys sweat it out for a few days and coming up with something else. And that probably would have been a better idea. There were a couple of dead ends, especially early on where we weren't like, you could guess what the puppet masters patterns would be. And like, eventually we figured out intangible yeah. harmonics was a distraction. There would be days when we would spend time in the office, just considering like her clues, but then we can never make them fit. And, and often it was, just us waiting for the next thing from one of the other groups or another clue from Captain Smith mm. that we, we were thinking, oh my gosh, we're missing something. And so we'd spend days sweating it out, but we hadn't missed anything. It just hadn't come yet. And when it did arrive, especially on the wiki or something like that, I mean, this is sometimes the creepy thing is that like, let's post the clues in the wiki as soon as they're done their seminar, because you knew where we were most yeah. of the time. So <laughs> let's wait until they all go back five minutes after the end of class. They're all back in the office. They're all checking and boom, a clue lands. And it's <laughs> like the office explodes into you know action. And I, I think very early on, we were sent to the library to look for the author of the poem but it was in a different book or something like that. We had to couple, we had to find a couple of different books. There's no way that they would take the risk of putting in, because we did know that we were playing a game, right? So we had to sort of keep that away most of the time, but there's no way that they would take the risk of leaving the clues in the library books for longer than half an hour. So we often we were, oh my gosh, they were just at the library just before us. No, um, we put those in about a week or two earlier. Really? Yeah. Oh my with, gosh. Yeah. I'm not sure how many people at Western were studying the War of 1812. Well, us. Uh, but, yeah. And it was, it was early enough in the year that the students, like the undergrads, weren't doing their term papers and right. all of that. So yeah. it was fine. And we, we chose some really old books that we knew hadn't been taken out in ages. Um, but, I mean, this was all done kind of guerrilla style like we didn't tell anybody we were doing anything like we just sort of slipped the stuff into the books and then then gave you the 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 clues to find the books and sure enough and a lot of those clues too build sort of the picture of of this character so i think if 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 i'm remembering right now it's sort of more coming back to me as we're talking about yeah. it that the captain smith character who was a reenactor knew he was being followed by what was the mothman yes. and uh and he so he hid his clues around town that in, in the library and, and in books on specific pages that he thought were relevant that showed a longer term conspiracy by the americans against the memory and the history of tecumseh yes uh, so, and something about the use of conspiracy in this way to 
expose actual conspiracies or actual um, redirections of history was, Mm -hmm. it was hard to see it while we were living it, but almost immediately after it was obvious that the, what we lived was what, how some, how history is sometimes reconstructed or even just constructed. So um, that was talk about being immersed in the process. Well, you got it, Adrian. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Although it did take some recovery time. I remember there was a couple days we were all, you know, terrified. Um, (laughs) We, we picked up on the fear and we knew it wasn't fear, fear. Yeah, it wasn't fear. It, we loved that you guys were such good sports yeah. and you were willing to play with us, even though you didn't know who we were. We, we, we were not revealed, I think, until the very last day where we had like a dinner and we had drinks and stuff and you met everybody. We were, yeah, uh, so the, the reveal was out at Fanshawe Pioneer Village. That's correct, yeah. We had to navigate the village for an hour or so into a couple of buildings. And then in the last, in the last building, there was, there was Captain Smith waiting for us. Yeah, yeah, and he was played by Bill Templeton, an actor and writer here in here in London, uh, and he he was he was amazing. And so one of the things we we did, so my uh, closest partner in the group was Oliver Charbonneau, who's now at University of Glasgow now. So we would sit there, and it would be eleven thirty at night, and you guys solved this this problem. We were watching you do it through Twitter, or whatever it is, and you figured it out. So we raced into school and went to my office and shut off all the lights and then wrote down everybody's name who we saw had contributed and then had like the Dr. Claw bad guy sort of give it to the henchman, you know, go get him or whatever it was there just to have you guys realize that it was in real time. And so that when you got up in the morning, there was this video waiting for you. You know, it's like going on a roller coaster, right? Roller coasters introduce fun. So this wasn't a fear fear. It was a fun fear. And that's what really drove the, that with the conspiracy. And then like with the fun, this, uh, this, everything was fun, right? The, the history was challenging, especially sometimes when we were looking for um, like the poem I remember being a couple of days of us trying to figure it out. It was a, that one was a really big yeah. challenge, but like that, all of that was still fun. So I don't want to say, say that you scared me out of, out of history. We continued playing. There was some times when there was a, like a good week, I think of a lot of Mothman activity that was just absolutely terrifying. And so when I heard the next year, I think the next year I had left Western and the next year you, you, you guys were out at Brock doing the same thing. I was just thinking in my head, oh gosh, I hope those, uh, what grades was it? Grade seven, eight, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't, no, and it wasn't we couldn't do that same thing. Yeah, no, no, no. There's no way you could do what you could do to us. No. But uh, yeah, no, we had a good time. The, the second one, we called it the untextbook. We wanted to have that sort of idea that this is not a game. There were a few little markers that the students could find when they're looking through the book with their phone. And if they clicked on one, it would be Captain Smith, the same guy, Bill Templeton, the guy you uh, played, Captain Smith. And he would be in a little room and he would say to the kids, your teacher is lying to you. Right. She's not telling you the whole story. Dig deeper in this book and you'll find a secret. And then we, and we told the teacher not to let on that she knew anything about this. We used General Proctor, who was the, this notoriously bad general from, from the War of 1812, who people blame for losing the Battle of the Thames, for Tecumseh being killed and all of that. Yeah, basically abandoning 
retreating yeah. and abandoning Tecumseh to the field. Yeah. Yeah. And he was court-martialed for cowardice or whatever it was. And so we had the students then had to collect information for and against him that was sort of hidden in the book. And by that, I mean like, like little things that they'd click on and then it would take them to a different page and it would have primary sources. And then the finale in that one was they'd put Proctor on trial and decide for themselves whether or not history was fair. So Bill Templeton, like I said, he's a writer and uh, an actor here in London, and we did commission him to write a modular version of Tecumseh Lies Here. So that does exist. It's a big, thick dossier of how you can run this on your own. It's a little bit different. It's how, it's how Bill would have run it. It's, a, it's a kind of a different story, but it, 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 it captures the same, the same ideas. Right. Um, and the, the idea was to make it replayable because that was the big problem and is the big problem with alternate reality games is that you have all of this and your listeners are saying, Oh, that'd be fun to try. Well, I don't know where you're ever going to find it. Uh, you can do, you can do yours. Whereas the big, that's, that's a good, uh, that's a good start. But these big elaborate ones, they're just, they're not super feasible. And that's the problem. And, and exhausting. And, and mm -hmm. how long can you keep people's attention for, especially like, like for us, we had all the time, because our professors were very supportive of us not doing any other work and just working on the game. Yeah. Well, they knew too that. It, and they uh, knew, right? Like yeah. everybody was on board. So like we didn't yeah. have any challenges in terms of time or resources. We just kind of went for it. But that part of that was because of all the, the additional things that you guys put in our way while we were playing. Yeah. That wasn't, it wasn't like the other four, you wrote 60%. The other 40% was stuff that we kind of made you do. <laughs> to keep it going. So we we never really came up with an ending. We were still we were still confused by our own story by the end of it. Of There's so many twists and turns. Like I think what what a challenge that we face when we do it. So we have two. We have Where's the Pig, but we also have History Hunters, which is you know a fairly common name. But the the plot line is that there's an evil historian trying to erase William Hamilton Merritt from the um, from history so that he himself can take credit for building the canal. And so the, I think there's five or six modules and you have to communicate with a couple of, with Merritt himself from mm -hmm. 1812, who's time traveling, with the evil historian and with their, I think there's a helpful historian or someone. Making that work and making, and we do, we sometimes do it over March break. So over a five day period of short, short one hour sessions, or we can do it in one day and making that work. These are bright kids that have experience with primary resources. And even then trying to get them to the answer. Oftentimes, Sarah, I think when you're in the room with them, you're like, I think maybe we should write this back in the email to them. <laughs> yeah. So that Adrian who's sitting upstairs can plug in the actual answer that you need to have to get to your next clue. That's a, a, a common, I need to manipulate you yeah. a little bit to make this game work the way you want it to. But if you tell anybody whether it's me, a grown person, or a grade seven, eight, or a grade five, that you know your your teacher is lying to you, or there's a <laughs> historian, or you know there's a conspiracy, or um, we don't know the answer to this question. We need your help to figure it out. Like, or the pig is missing, and we need your help mm -hmm. to find the pig. The pig's on the lamb, you know. Like the pig wants to be. Um, wants to run away, you have to find the pig, then that's like such a hook that uh, just wraps people right in. Such an exciting part that like, I remember most of the history, but clearly my attachment to the game is the experience and the story. I'm always going to link those two things together. But uh, like, I get really excited about, oh my gosh, that was like the coolest research adventure ever. Mm -hmm. And you had a good group of 
people to work with. And, and what I remember too about this was the fact that we had what, about 10 or 12 of you. You didn't know each other. Yeah. And by the end of it, you had you would solve this thing and work through it together. We didn't intend it to be this way, but it became kind of like a team builder. Absolutely. For the group, for sure. The not knowing people part. Cause some, I remember early on we were thinking maybe some of us are in on it, like who knows what. And you know, like very early on, it was just every man for himself kind of until, until we discovered that maybe, okay, no, there aren't secret. There, there might be a mole or something, you know? Yeah. It was absolutely, absolutely wild. Just yeah. wild. It's the coolest thing I think I've ever participated in. <laughs> well, that's, I'm really months. pleased to hear you say that. Cause <laughs> it, and the one thing that's very tricky in public history is to get the level of intensity, but also the level of, get the rating. Is it PG? Is it R? Is it G? Right? Because if it's, if it's too cartoony, our, our thing was that let's try and appeal to the hardest demographic of public history. And that is late teens and early 20s. Right? <laughs> and we get them interested in history. This is what we came up with was this sort of uh, the sort of game. And in some ways, you know, the um, what we were doing is not unlike the mystery rooms, right, where they have the same type of thing, but condensed and in one hour in one room, right, but we spread our mystery room across the city. And it was very fluid, but I'm not entirely sure how what we did would work today. Right. It's amazing how what a difference 10 years makes. And as I was just prepping for this, going through some of the old stuff, we never once considered well, what happens if someone trolls us? What happens if um, someone deliberately wrecks something? <laughs> it never occurred to us that someone would do that. No one did. But now I think that would be something I would really consider. How, how can we, we would have, we couldn't just make this an open thing. Anyone can join and come and play. We would have to make it much more boxed in. Yeah, even even in designing Where's the Pig, we had the challenge that it was all pre-recorded, and we were really worried about engagement because what's the point if people aren't going to be participating somehow? And so we wanted to film it once a week, but there was no way we were going to be able to do that just with our, our level of programming that we do. If we opened that door, what would that do to our script? What would that do to the story? So we kind of had to lock it down and then encourage people to participate via whatever other routes we had with like mostly social media. So, and Where's the Pig is in nowhere close to the experience that we had with Tecumseh Lies here, but the, um, the idea of the adventure part is similar, but still reveals the, sa the same kind of challenges that we have in any kind of storytelling, virtually or in person, but over a, a period of time. So even if you take an exhibit and you try to tell a story over this, this shape of a room in different media, you still have that challenge of trying to keep people engaged and not give away the end of the story before they get there. The elements that go into that specific experience, but also some of our others, are the elements that are that are in common with every good story and every good storytelling. And so at the end of the day, we're throwing all of this technology and all of this experience and all of these plot lines and stuff like that. At the end of the day, what we're doing isn't that much different from our regular work. And, and I, I think you raise a really good point. I think that all the technologies and all these new things that we have are not there and cannot, will not put historians and public historians out of work. It's there to help us tell our story better. And we just need to think about how we're going to use these, not as technologies again, but as mediums. Yeah. Uh, 
in the same way, um, you know, that, that movies a hundred years ago, no one, people just recording plays. Well, what if we use trick photography and then that changes it and becomes something else. Mm -hmm. So this is up to us and up to your listeners to figure out what to do with all these new things. Absolutely. And I, and additionally, I don't think that it changes the level of interpretation or the, the takeaway at the end, even though the engagement level might've been different or is different based on the experience. So there's like that experience level of like, I remember the Mothman coming for me, but I also connect that with like Tecumseh's story. The interpretation level doesn't disappear just because I'm being chased through a cemetery. <laughs> we didn't chase you through the cemetery. No, you just had the idea that it could happen. It could have happened. It was probably a dream or a nightmare that I had where it actually happened, but that's a different that's just a side effect, a side effect of that particular game. <laughs> Do you have a favorite memory of when you were running the game? You know, hearing what you're saying about how engaged you were, it was so much fun to be on the other side. So I should do a shout out here. So our team was, it was my son, Rob McDougal was, was in charge, but he was a busy professor and he would come down and he would say, okay, this is what needs to happen and, you know, make it happen. And then we would go off in a way that I don't think he might always been very happy with what we did. But nonetheless, that's, that's how it went. So it was myself and um, Oliver Charbonneau, who I mentioned, and then Dr. Nick Virtue. So we were all doing our PhD together. So I was one brought in and I just couldn't handle it. And so I basically brought my two buddies that were that were there. But then we also had Bill Templeton. He was, uh, he's a great guy. Like I said, he was the one who we had um, do the, do the, to the um, perform as Captain Smith, and he also did a lot of the writing. And then we also had Megan Baxter, um, who was also doing uh, her PhD with me at the time and was married to uh, Bill Templeton. And she did, she was the voice of Sophia, if you remember her screaming when the Mothman came for her and a few other things. And so they were really good. So we worked as a team, and the more excited and the more engaged you guys got, uh, the more we wanted to do stuff. It was energizing. And some of the stuff we ended up doing was pretty dumb <laughs> and pretty goofy with the videos. But it was because we were just like in fits laughing about your responses and we just loved it. So there was one, there was one experience. I don't know if I should tell us now, but, it, but we were sitting there and we were trying to come up with something, some, some new place or some, some new video of von Steuben, who was another one of these characters who was a bad, on the bad guy team and the Mothman, who was me. And we were sitting in, uh, sitting in my car, I think we're in front of Max or something like that. And I had this gas mask that I was wearing for the videos and had a fedora. You kind of look at the spy versus spy guy. And uh, we start getting all dressed up and suddenly realize we're in public <laughs> and we're in front of a Max and someone is going to see us and think we're about to rob the store. <laughs> so we very quickly got a grip. <laughs> like, can you imagine if three PhD students get arrested in front of Max? <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, we're setting traps for these students. <laughs> so it was, you know, it, it's an alternate reality game and it really, it really altered our reality. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but for your, for any listeners who are interested, Professor McDougall and I uh, wrote two articles on this um, and they're available online. The first one was a chapter in Past Play edited by Kevin Key, which is freely available from the University of Michigan Press. Uh, Professor McDougall and I wrote a sequel called Tecumseh Returns uh, about the next version. That's also through University of Michigan Press. Um, and in the book I mentioned earlier, 
that was edited by myself and Kevin Key. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we'll put those in the we'll put those in the footnotes to the episode for sure. Oh, it was so wonderful to chat with you about this really great project. I love how much fun you guys had with it, listening to your stories and your experiences <laughs> and reliving it. Uh, but in the end, like you, like Adrian, you had a meaningful experience here where you learned history and it entirely engaged and consumed you. And I think that's what a cool medium. Yeah. I mean, there was the, my own like personal experience, which was fun in the game. There was the learning experience of learning the Tecumseh plot or the Tecumseh history I should say plot. But then there's also like the public history learning, which was also really beneficial because this game and Tim, like, I hope, I know there's goofy elements to, to the game, but I hope you and your team know that, you know, your game, at least for us has inspired a couple of programs that the public has fully enjoyed so um you know there's there is other there's other elements to the whole story and that the game is kind of stuck with me i told sarah about the game (laughs) and she was super excited (laughs) so it's been it's become an inspiration for uh some of our more adventure style style programs so it's it's there's so many benefits to it even though it was probably really hard to do and to execute well it's really gratifying to hear keep it up Yeah, thank you. Thank you to Dr. Tim Campo for taking this time to chat with us about Tecumseh Lies Here, ARGs, and digital public history. We will for sure link to more information on Tecumseh Lies Here in the episode notes on the blog. So Adrian, what did this conversation make you think of when it comes to our Where's the Pink adventure? I think the coolest thing about um, this type of game and and Tecumseh Lies Here is the mystery factor. So in Tecumseh Lies Here, it's a true mystery that we don't know what happened to Tecumseh after the Battle of the Thames, what happened to his body. And it's kind of interesting that this random thing that you would never expect to happen in downtown St. Catharines happened. Like this pig escaped and it's a mystery, you know? And I think that mystery really does a lot to engage people. People love mystery. There's a reason why Agatha Christie is the most published author of all time or however many copies of books of hers has been printed. Um, People love mystery, right? And uh, so I think that does a lot to engage people. Kind of like, oh, it's this thing. But then also it's weird right? Like, Mm -hmm. where's the pig is weird. It's not something that you would expect to find at a museum. It's not something that you would, that anyone would expect to start playing this game called where's the pig. And so I think that weird factor kind of plays into the mystery factor. And then when you put that all together, pigs are cute. And so you're, (laughs) you know, we're kind of like, well, of course I want to find this pig. What do you mean there's a pig downtown? Like I've never seen a pig downtown before. What do you mean there's a pig? 
Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, we got to find this pig. And so I think that really just instantly engages people into this this history thing. And I think that's the the similarity between where's the pig and Tecumseh lies here is that the game the game was about finding the pig, but the additional history level was about uh, learning about downtown. In Tecumseh Lies mm-hmm. Here, the game was, you know, let's find Captain Smith, rescue Captain Smith from all these evil people. But the history level was learning all of this stuff about uh, not only Tecumseh's death, but like every everything that's gone into the mystery of Tecumseh's death. Yeah, I agree. I also, uh, it's the playfulness factor of games like Tecumseh Lies Here and Where's the Pig? where there's an element of play and curiosity that sparks the interest of people of all ages. And uh, something that I think people might have been drawn to if there's the pig is it wasn't just a linear story of the history of downtown. We weren't like, okay, back in 1845 or whatever the dates you want to throw out, um, it was more adventurous where we were moving all over the place, moving backwards and forward through time to tell you the story the history of downtown and different aspects of it um, and taking you all over downtown find, seeing built spaces and hit and built heritage that still exists and other places that are no longer around really playing on your imagination uh, and and getting you to play along with us i think is what makes it fun we really encourage people and where's the pig to play with us to follow along to guess and do the quizzes and the polls and uh yeah do a little bit of detective work in their own hometown absolutely and it does require a little bit of you know suspension of disbelief because the we made the pig the character the pig can leave clues the pig can write notes the pig can write clues the pig you know goes to the market <laughs> um so you know there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief there but i think what that does is it helps people sort of recognize oh well you know this is my daily environment and all of these layers are on top of in, in this case is built heritage but it could be anything right all of these layers are on top of the places where i go every day and i think you know that helps people have grow an appreciation for what's around them which is really important to not only just sort of understanding our history but just just knowing what kind of place you live in it really just comes down to having an appreciation for what the built environment does for our identity it makes it a much more interesting and a much more unique place to live after the pig has been to the Welland House for a bath than uh, just, you know, knowing that that building exists, basically. Mm -hmm. The making of Where's the Pig? Um, I mean, I think in in terms of some of the other things that we've done, it's been pretty easy. Writing Where's the Pig especially in the in-person version for the students was really hard because you can't really play the game with 30 kids, like a full class. You have to divide it. And so we actually had to write three different mysteries and clues to find the pig for the three groups of about 10 that we had playing the game with each of us, um, each of the leaders in the game. So that was really hard, like figuring out how to overlap and not be at the same place at the same time. And also what stories we're telling and making sure that the plot worked together. Mm -hmm. And then transitioning that into the virtual version for YouTube, um, the harder part, because it was already written, it was kind of easy to figure out, you know, okay, we'll go here, here and here. The harder part was the lack of instant engagement with the audience because we were doing it virtually and because we have a bunch of other programs to do 
we had to make the decision to film everything with you in one day, or in mm-hmm. a, I think we did it in two days. Good thing about that is that we were able to actually handle the workload and like put the episodes together and you know and schedule them and, and have them ready and everything. We weren't rushing and the and so we could ensure that quality was good. But the not so great thing was that we didn't have any instant feedback from the audience mm-hmm. because if anybody participated on a weekly basis we weren't able to take what they put and then put it into the next video because the next video was already filmed and edited. So that's the, that's the hard part. I mean, the, the where's the pig series worked really well and people really enjoyed it, but it didn't do the same thing as it does in the in-person version, which is uh, the game actually. And, and Tim talks about this. You have to be flexible as the puppet master or the game maker uh, because what feedback you get back can change the game. Those are some of the, the challenges with the virtual version, even though way more people were able to see where's the pig, you know, in, in one viewing, then they would be able to, to play the game. You really can't play the game with more than 10 people because it's just, you know, how do you fit 10 people on a sidewalk versus, you know, in-person versus virtual. So there's, there's, in my opinion, there's no, there's no great replacement for the game playing that you get from the in-person but the story and the mystery and the learning and the fun and the weirdness of it still came through, luckily still came through in the virtual version. Absolutely. We were just missing kind of that real time interaction with the in-person program. I found it fascinating talking to Tim about all of the work that the puppet masters put into to come to life here. Like it seemed like, Tim and his colleagues were working like 24-7 because you guys were playing the game 24-7. You know, but something inside of me says, well, like, where's the pig is nowhere near as cool as to come to lies here, even though it is. It's just a to- it's just different and it's more feasible. And in, in that way, it's probably more enjoyable and more rewarding for, you know, for non-historians. Because we were, you know, playing the game, we were we were a bunch of historians who were like super nerding out the whole time. And that might not be <laughs> everyone's idea of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's fair enough too, right? And I think something like Where's the Pig, where it's just silly enough, where we, it's designed for children to follow along, but we actually found on our social media, a lot of adults were not just liking the post, but following the post and keeping up to date and asking, you know, when's the next episode coming out? Uh, they were kind of hooked on the episode. So it was kind of cool to be able to create something that could engage all different audience levels and age levels and interests and diversity in so many different ways um, and have them play along with us. I think that was super rewarding on our part was to have such a wide variety of people interested um, and feel a connection to history where they might not have already. Um, So yeah, I I really did appreciate that. I I did want to bring up just before we wrap up how I think it's so cool that a game that Adrian, you played however many years ago has inspired... (laughs) But that it's continued to inspire our programming here at the St. Catharines Museum. And one thing I find incredibly special about working in the museum field and working with historians at uh, Brock University, which we've done in the past, is how we're all able to work together to share ideas, whether it's professors at Brock or other museums in Niagara or all over, share our ideas, inspire each other, um, what works, what doesn't work, what we can do, um, what's available to us, new possibilities, and create new programming that engages audiences. I love the communication. And especially I found since the pandemic, um, where we've all are entering these uncharted territories of how do you 
run museums in the midst of a pandemic, I've really appreciated um, how we've been able to connect with other museums to see what works um, and to move forward and create successful, engaging programming. So I did wanna, wanna end on that note as we you know, continue to try and serve our communities as best as we can. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. Thanks so much again to our very special guest, Dr. Tim Campo of Huron University College and Western University, the best school in the world, for taking the time to chat with two public history nerds. Little shout out to Carleton University right here to say, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to watch the episodes of the Where's the Pig adventure series, check out our blog and search for the Where's the Pig category or find us on YouTube at St. Catherine's Museum. You can also search the videos on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash St. Catherine's Museum, or on our IGTV on our Instagram at STC Museum. Make sure to subscribe to Museum Chat Live and the museum's other podcast, One Hour in the Past, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.